This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm just one of your hosts and joining me as he does every week is the quirk to my rom, I'm going to say, Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going today? I'm sitting on a pile of gold press latinum. And I'm very happy. I feel all the riches of the universe are beneath me. Yeah, well, I'm the Nagus and you can't take that away from me. <laughs> Moogie! <laughs> awesome. Well, today is going to be a Ferengi episode of Literary Treks because in the feature we are talking to authors Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman about their recent Star Trek Deep Space Nine ebook novella. And that is I, the Constable, which is uh, features Quark and his gang, but also Odo quite heavily. So that'll be quite fun. We'll get to that in the feature. But first, we've got some news this week uh, and a cover reveal, which is always a lot of fun. Maybe a little less fun now that Matt's not here and, and not singing anymore, but still pretty cool. We're going to judge a book by its cover. No, I, I can't do it. Not like Matt. <laughs> Oh, man, that was almost I was having flashbacks there. That was pretty good. <laughs> but yeah, we've got the cover reveal and, of course, the back cover blurb to the next Discovery novel by Dayton Ward. And that is Drastic Measures. And that one's going to be coming out, uh, I want to say, uh, beginning of February, February 6th. That's right. February 6, 2018 is the release date for that book. And uh, yeah, let's start out by taking a look at this cover. Uh, what do you think of the cover here? So we have Captain Giorgio and Lorca on the cover. And they're in their uniforms like we see on Discovery. So I like the cover and we see the actors. They look like, you know, they probably took publicity f photos and, you know, put them together or whatever. So uh, it's got, you know, Starfield or something in the background. Uh so I tweeted at one point when Dayton Ward put this out on Twitter about the cover, I said, so does this mean that because this book takes place 10 years before discovery 
the TV show. Mm-hmm. I said, so does, does this cover mean that they still had these types of uniforms 10 years prior to Discovery? Mm. Mm. He did not answer. Interesting. <laughs> well, he doesn't read my tweets, I'm sure. So, no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't think that this really means anything because it, it's the actors as they look now. It's more current day and right. it's trying to, you know, look like the show. But it, it looks, I like it because we're seeing the two captains together that we never saw them together on the show. So it's kind of cool to see them uh, on a cover like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say I like this cover more than I liked the cover for uh, David Mack's book, uh, Desperate Hours. It's, I mean, I, I've got a comment on that cover, that ridiculous shot where they, they have women pose a certain way so both their butt and their face are in the picture and no one ever stands like that and it looks ridiculous. Right. But, we don't have any butts in this one. No, I mean, they're they're standing kind of like normal human beings, which is great. Although I, I think maybe the look on Captain Georgiou's face is saying something like, Lorca, you're in my personal bubble, back off. But other than that, it looks pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't look too happy, uh, you know, but he's holding, you know, yeah. his rifle like he's ready to attack something. Yeah. Does Lorca ever look happy, though? I don't know. Uh, only when he's petting the Tribble in his office. Aw, there's an image. <laughs> I want to see fan art of that now. Lorca just like in his quiet time petting his Tribble. Anyway, <laughs> so we've got the back clo- cover blurb here as well. It is 2246, 10 years prior to the battle at the Binary Stars, and an aggressive contagion is ravaging the food supplies of the remote Federation colony Tarsus IV and the 8,000 people who call it home. Distress signals have been sent, but any meaningful assistance is weeks away. Lieutenant Commander Gabriel Lorca and a small team assigned to a Starfleet monitoring outpost are caught up in the escalating crisis and bear witness as the colony's gover- excuse me, governor, Adrian Kodos, employs an unimaginable solution in order to prevent mass starvation. While awaiting transfer to her next assignment, Commander Philippa Georgiou is tasked with leading to Tarsus for a small, hastily assembled group of first responders— It's hoped this advanced party can help stabilize the situation until more aid arrives, but Georgiou and her team discover that they're too late. Governor Kodos has already implemented his heinous strategy for extending the colony's besieged food stores and safeguarding the community's long-term survival. In the midst of their rescue mission, Georgiou and Lorca must now hunt for the architect of this horrific tragedy and the man whom history will one day brand Kodos, the Executioner. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. It doesn't don't you feel like every time <laughs> we read these covers or these back covers, we have to go dun dun dun. It's it's just yeah, it's that moment. You have to do it. I you know, this <laughs> I, I'm I'm excited about reading this. I, I feel like maybe we talked about this before, but uh you know, I thought originally when I heard this novel was gonna take place ten years prior to uh, discovery i thought maybe it was going because because dayton hinted that there's an event at that period of time that we all know of that's going to fall into this and i and i mentioned to him that i thought it would be the launch of the enterprise the uss the original enterprise uss enterprise mm-hmm. and which uh, was a good guess and i i think i was on board with you yeah with that too. i was like oh yeah like, that's got to be it yeah he's like mm, okay sure yeah whatever but it's <laughs> now this totally makes sense uh, Kodos the Executioner, which 
doesn't mean we can't see both, you know, but uh, mm-hmm. we've had some other books with Kodos the Executioner during that whole time um, uh, that this, you know, tragedy happens on this planet on Tarsus Four. Um, so I like the fact that we're going to see that time frame again in this event, but have the two captains who aren't captains yet be involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, it's really cool, again, tying it to an event from Star Trek canon. And, you know, this is a major formative event in in Star Trek. I mean, we've got a young James T. Kirk who is there and bore witness to all of this as well. So, you know, uh, really cool. I'm really looking forward to this one. And, you know, Dayton is a great author. So there's some really good stuff, I think, going to be in this novel. Well, really looking and, and this that. this book and the previous one that uh, David Mack wrote, uh, Desperate Hours, both of these are discovery books that tie into TOS. Mm-hmm. We saw the Pike crew interact with the Shinjo crew, and, and now we're seeing these two captains during an event that we've learned about in TOS that had a young Kirk. So there's those connections there. So those are kind of fun. Those are the kind of things we can't necessarily get in the TV show as much. So, or mm. Nor should the TV yeah. show go too far into connecting directly to TOS. I like you know the Easter eggs and, and some connections you know leading into things, but not just a direct story that takes place with what we learned of something at TOS. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's something the novels have always done is tie disparate bits of continuity together. So yeah, it's really cool to see that kind of stuff taking place here as well. And plus it's a blue cover. I really like blue. That's a nice color. Blue's my favorite color. What's yours? Um, Mostly blue. I'd have to say I really like some purple as well. Purple's a really nice color. All right. But, you know, pretty much that end of the color spectrum. I'm with you right there. Blue and purple, yes, I'm with you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we've also got a couple of comics to take a look at this week. We've got Boldly Go number 14. We'll start with that one. Uh, This is the second issue in the Idic miniseries in the Boldly Go series. Bruce, what are your kind of initial thoughts on this one? Uh... Okay, that didn't sound too good the way I did that. Uh, (laughs) No, I like it. I liked it better than I thought because, well, first of all, I went into it because I looked at the cover and we see the crew as the opposite gender from what we know them to be in the Kelvin timeline, which we've already explored that before in a previous issue in Star Trek Ongoing. So we're returning to that. And when I look at the cover and I see the female version of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, I'm, I just felt like, didn't we already do this? And so I thought, well, okay, you know, I'm going to read, read this, of course. And once I get in, got into it, then I started to worry even more because it seemed to focus. I thought maybe the cover showed the female versions of them, but I thought they're probably, it's probably not the focus. But then when I started reading it, it seemed to be the focus. But then we got off of them when we started to explore not just this crew and the Kelvin Timeline crew that we know, but other Enterprise crews from other dimensions. And it started to get more and more interesting to me. So starting off, I was a little hesitant of like, you know, return to something we've done before, but then it's really started to get different. And I was really starting to enjoy it once I got halfway through it. Yeah, we definitely do see a bunch of different universes. I kind of like that we 
start from the perspective of a universe other than, oh, I just about said the prime timeline, but it's not. It's the Kelvin timeline. So many timelines now. And then, of course, this is messing it up even more. There's so many different parallel realities here. Uh, it was kind of neat that we started in a perspective other than the one that's, you know, the main one for this series. Uh, but yeah, like you said, then we get into all these other universes and there's one in particular that is really odd. We get the, uh, I, I, I guess the Tron androidy, I don't know what's going on version <laughs> of the enterprise where they're, for example, the, uh, captain Kirk of this one is commanding unit JTK dash one seven zero one of the starship enterprise, you know, and, and they're almost, he almost seems to be like a part of the ship. Like they're growing out of the, out of the workstations and the chairs. And I don't know, was that too weird or are you fascinated and want to learn more? It's, it was too weird when I saw it. Uh, but as it went along, I started to get a little more interested in them. They, they do seem, I wouldn't say they're, androids but almost like uh terminator 2 mm-hmm, yeah that they're they're silvery type beings that can morph because if you look at kirk on the bridge when we first see them his the lower half of his body is the chair he's not sitting in a chair it's like his it's almost like a shape-shifting thing like odo would do where it's like you know i'm i'm becoming the chair but then still seeing the top torso and head of of him molded into it but then later we see him walking around like a humanoid mm-hmm. so uh i mean it's it's interesting and that's the thing i want i like to see different things that we hadn't seen before and this is certainly different i like to maybe learn more about them and where they come from and why they are the way they are in, in an upcoming issue. So I hope we get to explore Mm -hmm. it a little more. Yeah. Well, with this issue, I I feel like this is kind of set up for what's to come. There's kind of a lot happening in this story that we don't really get an explanation for. Uh, so they're, they're kind of, uh, in this area of space and all these various enterprises are appearing or have appeared, uh, kind of like the episode parallels in TNG, all the different enterprise D's there. In this case, it's all the different, uh, enterprise one seven Oh ones and yeah. also the endeavor, <laughs> but we don't, <laughs> because well, right. Our, our, yeah. Our guys aren't on the enterprise anymore, but we don't see the prime timeline enterprise among all these enterprises unless I missed it. But I mean, I looked and looked at every ship thinking, okay, which one's the prime timeline one? And we don't, we don't see it. Yeah. I was, I was hunting for that too. I was wondering if they would, they would pull that in, but uh, yeah, no such luck. So we get kind of a continuation of the story of the orphan, Kirk, who was raised in Klingon society and, uh, um, Simon Grayson, I guess, which is that reality's version of Spock who has rejected his Vulcan side. And, you know, we get little bits of, of their story and then there's a big kind of flash and there's a surge in and it trails off and there's a big flash and various characters find themselves on in various places with different people from different universes. So we get Captain Jane T. Kirk, who is the woman version of Captain Kirk with the Kelvin timeline McCoy and the Tron Terminator 2 version of Uhura. And they're on 
Vulcan, it seems. And they're in a reality where Nero destroyed Earth instead of Vulcan. Right. So this isn't new Vulcan. This is Vulcan. And they refer to new Earth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And then, you know, our Kelvin timeline, Kirk, ends up with the Terminator 2 version of Sulu and uh, who else? And oh, and the Simon Grayson, that universe's version of Spock. And they're all together in some sort of jungle locale. And it's kind of I'm not sure what's going on exactly. No, it's it's like for something is pulling a member from each of the different universes and putting them together. So like the one you just mentioned, eventually we get the female Chekhov showing Mm up, uh, Pavela Chekhov Mm -hmm. (laughs) and who she's got a lot of heavy, uh, red lipstick, uh, (laughs) just on the one panel. It looks that way to me, but, uh, yeah, there's something that's pulling the the crews apart and matching them together. And I just want to know what it is and why. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, and, and there's a twist ending to this. I don't want to give it away. You guys should check out this comic. But um, yeah, it, it very much feels like kind of a middle issue. Uh, there's a lot of setup here with, you know, not a lot of explanation as to what's going on i'm kind of anticipating we'll get that in a later story uh it it feels like there's an intelligence behind this like somebody or something has brought them to these places i could be wrong but i feel like there's somebody pulling the strings behind the scenes yeah and it seems like a very q thing to do so i don't know if it's q or trelane or whoever Hmm. but uh I can't think of anything else besides that. I'm not saying that's what it is. I just, you know, I don't know who would purposely do this, but it does feel like someone, someone is doing this and it's not just a coincidence. Well, bottom line with this one, I'm definitely intrigued. I want to find out more. So uh, I would give this a recommend. Uh, You guys should pick it up. I don't know. I, I don't have a lot more to say about it without really knowing how the story ends up getting paid off, but you know, I'm I'm definitely interested and I'm really wanting to learn more. Yeah, because this is part two of four, right? Is that what we were saying or is it six? Or six. I think it is I, six. Possibly. Yeah. So, there, yeah, it's not a whole lot to say because it's a just a part of a story, a whole story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like, yeah, part two of uh, six. So this story is really just getting started. So we'll definitely learn more. We do also have a second comic we're going to talk about today, and this is one I've really been anticipating. This is the first issue of the new Star Trek Discovery comic miniseries, The Light of Kalos. And this one uh, follows the Klingons of Star Trek Discovery and kind of gives some background to their story. And uh, yeah, so... This one started in a place I wasn't expecting. It it kind of starts from the perspective of Vok and Lorel aboard the Klingon sarco- sarcophagus ship shortly after the Battle of the Binary Stars. Yeah. I was glad that it took place there because we have that six-month period between Episode 2 and Episode 3 of Discovery, and now we get to explore what was going on during that period of time with the Klingons. Uh, and then also getting 
backstory to uh, to Kuvma and to Voke. And, you know, so we're, we're really starting to, because when I heard about this as that, uh, this comic originally, I was wondering if we're going to explore the characters we already knew, or if we're going to explore a period before them, that was just about the Klingon society. And it's kind of a mix of both, but it's really focusing more on the characters that we are introduced to in Discovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, uh, Takuvma had a little bit of some flashbacks in those first episodes of discovery. And this is really kind of expanding on that and showing, um, kind of basically what it is, is Lorel is telling Valk about Takovma's past and where he came from. And it's, it's interesting because like I said, we get a little taste of it in flashbacks in the episodes of discovery, but here we really see, you know, he's him discovering, his family's ancient ship and, you know, his kind of start on the path towards becoming the Takuvma that we see in those first two episodes of Discovery. Um, it's And it's interesting. You know, I, I find myself actually a lot more interested in this than I thought I might be. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you there. Uh, so looking at, I guess it's page two, if you want to just go there real quick, because I have a question for you. We see a Klingon ripping at the uniform piece where the insignia was, I'm guessing on Captain Giorgio. Or well, I don't... Because it's got a yeah. medical, it's a medical well, insignia. The little, uh, it's the little actually security or engineering. Or security. Little, oh, that, yeah, right, security. Yeah. But that sh- so, that wouldn't be her. Whose is that? I don't, I don't think it is because, yeah, we see the uniform later too and it's very bronze. So I think it's just kind of implying that they're eating a bunch of <laughs> people that they captured in that battle or something like that is uh, okay. kind of my distasteful explanation is, is my guess anyway. Okay. Yeah, that could be then. I just wondered if it was Captain Giorgio, but uh, I guess not. But yeah. I I initially was thinking yeah, it might be Giorgio, but you know, I was, they must've, and this is getting a little macabre of course, but they must've picked up, you know, bodies that were floating or something because we know they were starving for those, uh, six months as well. Yeah. And my thought actually in kind of retrospect is um, the uh, helmsman who gets blown out into space um, from the Shenzhou. Uh, I can't remember his name. He featured, he was a yeoman in David Mack's book, mm-hmm. but he was the helmsman in the episode. And I can't remember his name, but he was, uh, he wore the operations insignia. Okay. That could be him, but you're right. I'm yeah. sure it's uh, probably one, uh, you know, they probably did, you know, grab a bunch of those bodies because we saw them use tractor beams to bring the bodies of their dead aboard. Right. Right. Uh, and so they would probably use the same things to go after the Starfleet officers to bring them aboard to just feast on them, which sounds <laughs> really bad but the one thing i i really one thing that really uh stuck out to me about this one is when we look at the past at takuvma it starts on chronos 
And the reason I point this out is because there's been some speculation from people saying, like, why do these Klingons look so different from the Klingons we know? And one of the things is, well, there's other worlds within Klingon space. Mm. So these could be Klingons from different, you know, Klingon worlds, not necessarily from Kronos. But now what we're seeing here in this flashback to Kuvma and other Klingons that look like him are on Kronos. They are are from Kronos. So to me, mm-hmm. that answers a question that we haven't gotten from the TV series is where are these different looking Klingons from? Are they from Kronos or from something other planet within the Klingon empire? And what we find out is no, they are on Kronos. Yeah. That definitely seems to be the case here for sure. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we pick up some things too with Takuvma as he's younger, as he's being picked on by, other young Klingons, you know, their adolescence and his brother and constantly being picked on and which we saw indications of that in discovery. So we see that tie in there, which is a very good parallel to what we've seen of Spock too, of Spock being picked on when he was on Vulcan. So Takuvma's past reminds me a lot about Spock. And I don't really understand why Takuvma is always the focus of being picked on by these other kids except that maybe he's a younger brother of his brother and his friends are picking on him and it's just that's how it is but i liked how then his sister steps in mm-hmm. as takuvma goes into the woods yeah i'm i'm thinking it has something to do they make mention a few times that he's smaller than the other kids mm-hmm. i guess maybe he's a, a little bit of a late bloomer because you know when we see him in in discovery He's not a small guy. He's a pretty big imposing Klingon. So he, he must kind of just be a late bloomer, I guess. But yeah, I really I really like his char- his sister's character. I think she's really interesting. I'd really actually like to know more about her. Uh, and yeah, the fact that she's kind of got this group aboard this ancestral ship of theirs and, you know, working towards this goal of going to Boreth and following the the path of Kalis is really interesting. I, I like I like the beginnings of Takuvma's journey here. Yeah, and that the, that this crew or potential crew of the ship once they get it off planet are descendants of Takuvma's family's ancestors. These are descendants of almost like, you know, workers or slaves or such of the it's it's a fascinating story and perspective of this culture and how Takuvma plays into this and his sister and, and Kales. And I guess the thing is if you're watching discovery and you have any interest in what's going on with the Klingons in discovery, you need to read this issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, you know, it's definitely more interesting than I was kind of expecting it to be. And I'm really curious to see where it goes from here. I, I guess just very much echoing what I just said about the last comic we talked about, you know, it's a, it's the first in a mini series. So, you know, we're setting things up here, but yeah, I'm really curious to see where this journey we see ultimately where this journey takes to Kuvma, but you know, where, how he gets there from here. Um, it's kind of an odd way to phrase it, but I feel like it's really humanizing the Klingons. And I think they would, uh, 
especially with their rallying cry of remain Klingon. They would really hate to hear me say that, but you know, it really feels like, um, they're, the writer is setting us up to really empathize with where the Klingons are coming from and where Tukuvma specifically is coming from. Right. And how we're learning so much more about their culture and their past and how they view their ancestors and those of the dead. And, you know, they have the family crypts and, and the craftsmanship that goes behind that. I mean, it's just, we're just digging deeper into Klingon culture, into areas that we've never explored before. And it just, it just adds such much more levels to 50 years of Klingon stories. And we're just creating more and digging more into it. And so it, it does make them seem more real because when you get so deep and get so much depth into the society, it just, the complexity of things just makes it feel like it must actually exist. Definitely. Yeah. Um, world building. And I, I think the writer and, and the artists in this issue do a really good job of that as well. So yeah, definitely uh, really interested in seeing where this one goes. And again, you guys should pick this one up because this is pretty cool. So what do you say we jump into the feature? We've got a couple special guests who are waiting to talk. Uh, we're waiting to talk to here. Uh, Terry J. Erdman and Paula M. Block, who are the authors of the newest Deep Space Nine ebook novella, I, the Constable. Now, these two have had a long and storied history with Star Trek, and we're really happy to have them on the show. They've been involved behind the scenes uh, with publicity for Star Trek for many decades. You might know many of the nonfiction books they've written. The Star Trek Deep Space Nine Companion, for example, is always has a prized place on my shelf and is an amazing piece of work. And they've done many other pieces of uh, behind the scenes stuff for Star Trek over the years. And this is the third Deep Space Nine ebook novella we've gotten from them. So what do you say we jump over to the feature and welcome them aboard? I am so ready. Let's do it. Well, November has seen a ton of new Star Trek releases, and the first release that we got a chance to take a look at this month is a new ebook exclusive novella by authors Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman. Their books, their ebook novellas have been really fun, and this one is no exception. We have I, the Constable, and joining us in the feature today are the authors, Paula Block and Terry Erdman. Welcome, you guys. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. We're really happy to have you on. Perfect. Well, we're glad to do it. it, 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 it the, the telephone calls are like part of our lives. Yeah. As is writing. Excellent. Well, we're really glad that writing is a big part of your life because, like I said, this is another really fun story we've gotten from you guys. And, and reading is a big around... part of our life, by the way. That's, that's <laughs> we do a lot of <laughs> We like that. Actually, we read we, yeah. we read constantly. It's seldom you see one of us without a book in our hands. That's what oh, that's what I like to hear. I think the world needs more readers, and the world also needs more writers like you guys. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thanks. We'd like to think so, but we don't know if anybody else does. Well, definitely count us among that, and I'm sure our listeners as well. Now, this story in particular, I the Constable, obviously centers around. Odo and Deep Space Nine and, and his whole story. 
And I wanted to talk a little bit about the inspiration for this story. What what was your inspiration for the basic story of I the Constable? Ooh, um, well, most of these these novellas start when uh, editor Margaret Clark from Pocket Books gives us a call and suggests, okay, it's time to do another one of these things. And she will often throw out a couple of ideas and then we kind of interpret it and we usually kind of go off track and she says, no, no, no. And uh, then we interpret it differently and kind of end up far away from her original premise, but she ends up really liking it. (laughs) This this time was slightly different from that though. Um, Paula and I were hoping that we would get to write a third novella. And um, so we were sitting around at home talking, you know, what could we do? What could we do? And I think Paula brought up that Quark has a second bar on Bajor. Right. And I said, what if he opened, wanted to open another one someplace, you know, you know, like a third one and uh, like on, you know, on a moon or something. And then uh, just a few days later, Margaret called and said, what if Quark wants to open a franchise, which was much bigger than just another bar. But we were kind of thinking in the same direction somehow, mm-hmm. even though we're on the West Coast and she's on the East Coast, you know, our, the, the streams crossed. Yeah. Yeah, she did mention franchise. So we started thinking about, you know, what kind of trouble could we get Quark in if he got involved with too many bars or something like that. And it it wasn't real funny. And we like these things to be funny. Yeah, I went online and uh, actually studied. I read some legal contracts about how franchising help, uh, starts, you know, and whether or not, um, you know, a franchise is generally when the local owner owns the business, but but signs up with a major company to carry their product and things like that. It was all really boring. And then Paula one day came up with a key word and she said, Frin. (laughs) Yeah, I think that might have been partly inspired because Margaret said something like, didn't Cork have a relative who had a bunch of bars? So I started digging into this and I realized it was his uncle friend, who was mentioned in uh, was it was it Civil Defense? Yeah, Civil Defense is a third. It's a Deep Space Nine season three episode. And there's a little conversation that um, Quark and Odo are talking. Quark's all you know, almost despondent. He's very sad because he's not doing so good. And I actually have the quote. Would you like me to read it? Um, Absolutely. Quark, Quark, <laughs> Quark says, "A lifetime of scheming and plotting, wheeling and dealing." And what have I got to show for it? One little bar. My uncle friend owns 30. And that's it. You know, that's it. And, and, and then Paula kind of ran with that and said, let's, uh, let's try to get Quark to take over friend's bar. That's great. I, I didn't even make that connection. I did. I thought it was a storyline that you just made up, but it actually comes from an episode that they have this uncle with 30 bars. Civil Defense Season 3. Yeah, we usually, we try to involve as many real threads from the show as we can, and uh, and probably as few from the established Deep Space Nine books as we can get away with, because we really like to harken back to the show itself. 
And, you know, so they're on a different space station than they were, you know, when it was on television. And there's some different characters around. But we kind of like it when we get off the station because then we can just let the characters be characters. And the fact that Cork has been has been operating a bar for 15, 20 years or whatever it is, and he only has two bars at this point, you really would think that he had would have branched out more. So it's about time something like this happens with him. Yeah, so the information that Ram gives him about his uncle, about their uncle friend, you know, opens a whole realm of possibilities to Quirk. Except, as usual, Ram has screwed that up for him. Well, and something that I thought was kind of cool, uh, the recent travel guides by Dayton Ward actually have Quirk uh, with franchises on Vulcan and Kronos. So I thought that was kind of, almost thought that was a little bit of a tie-in there. Uh, yeah, it takes place later, though, obviously, because <laughs> in our book, he still only has two. But I think Dayton, as I recall, Dayton mentioned um, on on Ferenginar that there is uh, uh, that that Fryn owns 30 bars. I think there's a, yes, he a did. little mention of yeah. it in Dayton's book. Yes, he did actually mention that. Oh, that's really cool. I love, like Bruce said, tying into the series like that, and, and I didn't catch that either. That's excellent. Well, another way that you guys tied into the series is uh, in, in the series, Odo becomes a big fan of noir detective novels, reading, you know, the likes of Mike Hammer and that sort of thing. And that kind of made me wonder, what sort of research did you guys do for this story? Did you find yourself reading a bunch of pulp detective novels to kind of set the tone? Sure did. <laughs> <laughs> we'd already, we'd, we'd read things, you know, Terry's a big fan of the uh, the Spencer books, but they don't really tend to go to noir. They're just good uh, mystery tales. But, um, you know, we'd already liked Raymond Chandler and some other things. Um, Odo specifically was led to Mike Hammer. Uh, so, and we hadn't read a lot of Mike Hammer, so we got ourselves a bunch of anthologies that had his stories. And he's a lot cruder than than some of the other writers <laughs> that were around during the era. Yeah, Mickey Spillane, who wrote the Mike Hammer books, is um, he's like a second-level uh, um, on the literary scale. The other writers like James M. Cain and and those guys, you know, they're all considered really, uh, you know, you study them in college. Mickey Spillane is kind of not that. He's more of a pulp writer, although we wrote more books and probably sold many more books. So it, it always surprised me that when the writers of Deep Space Nine, the TV show, you know, whether it was Ira or Ron or, or, or Robert or whoever it was, um, gave, had O'Brien give... Odo, these these books. It surprised me that they use Mickey Spillane because um, it's not the best literature. But it's fun, and so we decided to come up with a reason why Odo likes it because he, you know, he doesn't exactly say that when he he. Uh, there is a scene in one of the episodes where Odo mentions the Kira that he. Uh, oh, he he loans her one of the books. And he asks her what she thought about it, and they have a real brief little conversation about it. But uh, in the book, we our book, we tried to give Odo a little rationale for it. Like, he likes the real visceral nature of it and the primitiveness <laughs> of the whole thing. Well, he certainly has time to be doing some reading because he's not the constable of the station anymore. No. 
but you know he um in this book and in the previous book too they they seem to find ways to use him um to investigate as a constable more of a private investigator than a constable i'd love it if they they brought him back and just had him be that on the show, in the uh, book series because that's what he's best at yeah it would be nice but you found a really clever way in this story to actually do that not have him be the constable of the station but have him do that you know, secret investigation stuff that he does. And of course, involving Quark. I mean, what a great pairing of those two as always. Yeah. We, we saw right away that, you know, I mean, if Quark, something goes wrong in Quark's life and Quark, we, well, spoiler alert, um, (laughs) Quark disappears. So Rom, of course, being Grand Nagus would be, you know, really uh, concerned about his brother and um, we just thought that Rom turning to Odo just totally made sense. I mean, it just flowed that way. Well, this is probably a good time. We should uh, warn the listeners that we will be talking about spoilers in this book uh, kind of going forward here. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the plot of this story. So Quark's uh, investigating the possibility of taking over his uncle's business, this French, these these bars that he owns these 30 bars and in the course of being on Ferenginar and looking into that he goes missing and Odo of course sets off in pursuit at the behest of Quark's friends to investigate and I have to say I love the moment where Odo changes into his constable's uniform again it's like you know putting on the putting on the trappings of the old office and it's it's a really kind of coming home moment for Odo we did, I guess the first time we did it was in the previous, yeah. our previous and you, novella was called yeah. uh, Rules of Acquisition. Accusation, yeah. And we, um, Paula actually wrote the scene where as Odo is walking across the, the bar, he shimmers and suddenly is in his old brown constable uniform. And I just loved it. I mean, I, I didn't know she was, we sit in different rooms at two different desks and write she'll do a chapter and I'll do a chapter. And when she, and then we hand them to one another to read and to read jiggle and such. And uh, when I read that, I literally got chills. I just said, that's perfect. So uh, we have to credit Paula with coming up with that. Thanks. <laughs> you know, you did it. Yeah. But uh, so we, we didn't want to duplicate that in this, but we figured that Oda would say, well, if I'm going to be doing that again, I guess I should get back into my uniform. <laughs> so so he just does it in front of Roe in this story. I think he's very comfortable dressed that way. Yeah. Yeah, it almost seems like it would be something that he would put on airs about not being comfortable doing. But at the same time, it feels like he just settles right into that role right away and really does enjoy it. As, as much as Odo ever lets on that he enjoys anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, he's a guy with. I'm mean, just think of his situation. He's he's one of a kind in this in this particular world. You know, he can find others like himself if he goes out there looking. But um, he's completely alone, so he would have to find something that makes him feel like himself. And I've I've kind of always thought that that brown uniform was it because he's had it on now. I mean, he's he's had himself shaped that way most of the time for, who knows, decades, right? Yeah, I guess before that, he probably had some sort of quasi Cardassian uniform before uh, the Federation took over the space station when he was working for Dukat. 
Well, it's almost like it's his uh, superhero uniform. It's like he's <laughs> yeah. mild mannered Odo, and all of a sudden, dun, 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 he's back to superhero Constable Odo. <laughs> Yeah. But he's a perfect detective type, you know, he's sarcastic and cynical and and all of that stuff. So it just worked really well and we started when we started leaning more into this detective mode, uh, we didn't think Margaret would like it, but she actually encouraged it. And the only thing that was a little difficult for us was most of these noir type stories are written in first person. And we thought about doing it, but we immediately, and Margaret too, realized you can't really do a whole Star Trek story in first person because it breaks the mold of Star Trek stories and novels. Um, the only one that comes to my mind was uh, the Cisco story. And even that, he just kind of mentioned some stuff at the beginning and at the end, you know, in first person. But uh, you, in what You mean Pale Moonlight? Yeah. In, in the pale moonlight, he kind of dictates it. And so we thought about having him do it as a log, and Margaret said, yeah, you can do log entries. I thought maybe we'd do a log entry at the beginning of every chapter, but then um, since the previous novel in the series had established that Odo got back with Kira, we thought, oh, well, maybe he's writing letters to Kira. And that let him be, you know, that let him talk in first person. And you can see that he kind of slips a little bit more and a little bit more into the noir personality as he talks to her. Yeah, and that mechanism was really interesting. It allowed, uh, I, I thought, a really interesting way to come into the story. And it reminded me a little bit of uh, the second season Deep Space Nine episode, Necessary Evil, which kind of had a noir feel to it as well. And that one took the log entry idea. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, that did too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't doubt. I mean, that was kind of a detective story. That was certainly looking into a crime, and I wouldn't doubt that one of the writers, whoever, whoever, during the the time that the show was airing, one of those writers probably woke up in the middle of the night and said, "That's a detective story. Let's have O'Brien bring in Mickey Spillane stories for Odo." I mean, some all of these things had a little uh, had a little birth somewhere, and yeah. I think that was I, I would guess that to have been one of those births. Yeah, we'd probably have to reread the Deep Space Nine companion to remember all yeah. of the all of the little hooks between various stories. What's that? Is that a book? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, someday uh, maybe it'll get reprinted. Uh, yeah, I recommend you read it. It's it's really good. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll find it somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks. I do have to say, as a little aside, that book still has just an honored place on my shelf. That, oh, it's so excellent. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, st I'll stop buttering you guys up now. <laughs> well, in case people don't know, Paul and Terry wrote that companion book, so <laughs> that's why we're mentioning it. <laughs> so in the course of um, Quark looking into this possibility, he witnesses a crime, and uh, basically there's, there's this Ferengi... Uh, financial manager that has kind of weaseled his way in and the three wives that Fryn has left behind apparently uh, have kind of given this guy control over the finances but he pokes around and discovers some things and then is killed and Quark ends up witnessing this and then is kidnapped by the person behind the death of this guy Hilt and finds himself uh, 
tangled up in those shenanigans with Odo kind of hot on his trail. And uh, so that's that's kind of where the story is going. And through the course of the story, and again, like I said, we're getting into spoilers here. It turns out that one of uh, Frin's wives is actually behind everything here, which leads me into kind of an interesting thing we wanted to discuss. And Bruce, I saw you put this on the outline here. The idea of female investment in Ferengi society at this point and that whole aspect of Ferengi culture. How did you, uh, how did you guys kind of decide to work that into the story here? It's Ishka's fault. Ishka did all of it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Ishka Cor- got hold of, yeah, got, uh, got hold of, uh, the, the Negus got hold of Zek and just ruined everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we've seen that women are starting to get more of a role on Ferenginar thanks to Ishka's, that's Quark and Ram's mother, um, meddling in in society. And she married <laughs> Zek, which gave her a big front door to that type of thing and now with her son Ram being the Nagus she can also kind of influence him and Lita is Ram's wife so she would probably also want a little bit more female involvement in running things but um, but we tried to um, you know all these spoilers here but we tried to set it up to make uh, the reader think that these three women are really backwards Ferengi females. They don't wear any clothes. They, you know, they wander around and look kind of helpless, but one of them isn't so helpless. Yeah. But we, we were going that direction and it led us into a lot of real boring text. Um, we, we had Quark go to Ferenginar. We had for, and we had him in sort of investigating Fryn, Friend's uh, friend's death, and uh, it just didn't go anywhere. And so we thought, well, we've got to invent some other characters. We're going to have to bring in a little bit of color on Ferenginar. And um, so we came up with this character that we named Hilt. He was going to be a financial manager, and Quark obviously could get into discussion with him about about Ferengi financing and uh, and investment and such. And um, <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was just reading rather slow. And one day, I don't know why, it just just came into my head, and I walked up to Paul in our living room, and I said, "What if Odo goes hunting for Hilt, and when he finds him, he's dead?" And it just like clicked, and the book took off. The book became what the book is, just from that. Yeah, and and we should point out in the book, we kept the mystery going longer because originally we had scenes with Quark interspersed with the ones with Odo. But then we realized, well, let's keep the readers in suspense a little longer. So we start out with Quark doing his investigating into um, where Friend's finances are, and at a certain point, something happens, and Hilt gets Hilt gets killed, and we don't know what happens to Quark at that point. He disappears for about 50 pages or 75 pages of the book. And so we have Odo follow his path until he gets to the point where he finds Hilt's body and starts following clues from there on in. And it's not until later that we bring 
cork back into it because we realized we were going to have to cover a little bit of exposition anyway to show what actually happened in a number of scenes, and it was best to do it from from Cork's point of view. Yeah, so we were we tried we wrote what essentially are a few flashbacks, and we tried to write them the way they would be produced as flashbacks on a TV show. So we're always kind of trying to think of of uh, you know lighting and camera angle and all of that because let's keep in and never forget that Deep Space Nine was one heck of a good television show, and so we try to keep it like that. That's one thing I definitely find with these ebook novellas, especially the ones that we've gotten from you guys recently. It really does have that feel. It feels like a Deep Space Nine Ferengi episode, and and I mean that in all the best ways possible because you know it really did feel like I was watching an episode of Deep Space Nine. You know, a, a lost episode, basically. And that yeah. we, that we we hope so. That I mean, that's our intention. It is, and and whenever someone who reviews it says something like that, we're really flattered. Yeah, it makes us feel. I mean, we really hope we can try to capture that. We've never written a TV episode, so we think we're you know we're we're doing our version of that right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a little challenge. That's fun. It's it's really fun to try to do it. Yeah, I I love it. It's great, and there's no commercial breaks. I love that too. but we you know we watched the show so dedicatedly to do the deep space nine companion that it's not real hard to channel dialogue you know quirk is such a vivid character it's a little it would be a little harder to write someone like cisco because cisco is kind of an enigma You, you don't always know what he's thinking but Quark, you always know what he's thinking. And Rom, they're, it's not that they're two-dimensional. It's just that they're real predictable. It's fun capturing their voices. We yeah. really, when, when we're writing, I mean, we, I'm, I'm not writing Quark. I'm writing Armin doing Quark. Yeah. The Armin Shimmerman, the actor who played him on the show. Um, and we're not really writing Odo. We're all, we, always, we always have the actors in mind when we're doing it. Same thing, you know, we're doing Lita. Yeah. We have the actress in mind. It's yeah. just the way, you know, it's the, it, it makes it easy. Yeah. I wish we could hear an audio book of them someday. Somebody do an audio book with those guys in it. Oh, yeah. With the real <laughs> actors, the actual actors. That would be yeah. awesome. That would be so cool. Well, and I like the fact that when you mentioned earlier that we see Quark for a while and then we don't see him for 50 or 75 pages, whatever, and... Because Quark is that type that's always looking for a deal, I started questioning if, you know, not just what happened to Quark, but did Quark kill Hilt or did Quark do something bad? Are we going to see a, a darker side of Quark that we never, or he got himself into some, some really big trouble. So it really kept me guessing and wondering what's going on with Quark, what's going on with Quark. And I kept wanting to get to that point and follow Odo's journey. I mean, we're mm. taking that journey with Odo and trying to put the pieces mm. together. And I love that. Wow, you're the perfect reader. <laughs> <laughs> one of the uh one of the well we went through a few incarnations of where we were going to take Quark too. One of them which we didn't play with for very long cuz it just didn't seem to pan out too well was kind of doing a version of the Ransom of Red Chief where uh, the old O'Henry story where Quark gets kidnapped by some people um 
and but they're really stupid and he ends up teaching them how to be conniving and and make a lot of money at these bars which they're not doing very well at um but it just it didn't seem to have enough payoff so i'd forgotten all about that yeah (laughs) well speaking of quark kind of uh teaching people about this world and stuff at the very end of the story i find it very interesting we almost have a newfound philanthropy on this on the part of quark he's basically been that he's always been that <laughs> well way. he's got a little bit of it in okay. him go it ahead. just takes something to yeah. bring it out go ahead dan what were you going to say oh i was just going to say yeah he's basically doing pro bono work on this casino uh and I guess, you know, there, like you said, there's always been that aspect of Quark there. But what do you think was kind of behind that uh, newfound, sort of newfound generosity on his part? He's always been a good guy. We saw <laughs> we saw episodes, you know, uh, you know, the representation of that on the show. There were times I mean, there were there was one episode. Was it Who Mourns for Morn where where somebody comes up to him and says, uh, what would we have to pay you to sell enough weapons to kill, you know, you know, 75 yeah. million people or something? He won't do it. And they said, well, what if it's only 5,000 people? And he kind of starts and they said, oh, well, we know what your price is. We know where your line is now. And uh, but then he couldn't even do that. He never committed a crime that caused harm to somebody else and i think i think uh quark was always written that way he's a good guy and in well he's a he's a gray guy (laughs) he's not black he's not white he's gray oh he'll 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 uh misdirect you you know to his own advantage but I don't think he's ever done anybody any, you know, intentionally done anybody specific physical harm or something like that. Yeah. And I feel he, like, he killed a Klingon, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like when he when he kind of unintentionally does harm and stuff too, he always seems really guilty about it and kind of like I'm thinking of uh, invasive procedures in season two. He lets the 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 Trill Varad and and his Klingon thugs on board. And then realizes that they're there to hurt Dax and, you know, tries to do his part to rescue her. So, yeah, there's definitely that side of him. Yeah, there's yeah. a good, he, I think he's a, I'll say it again. I think Quark is a good guy. I don't think he's a <laughs> nice guy, but he is a good guy. <laughs> but, but uh, and in the end of the story where we see some supposed philanthropy, even Quark can't he can't say, no, I'm a good guy now. You know, he kind of goes, nah, I'm not getting soft. And the way he pitches it is that, well, I came up with such a good plan for improving this super bar at the north end of Ferengadar that I just can't let it go, you know. So, you know, he could pass it off and say, well, I'm hoping that someday they'll leave it to me or something because they don't have kids. But uh, really... You know, maybe he was doing it for the ladies. It's hard to tell. He just wanted to finish that plan. Well, I was wondering. I was. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to mention about him questioning. You know, am I getting soft? Nah. But maybe he's denying that. But is he getting soft? Has he been around too many of uh, Federation officers and such, and has become a better guy, or has he always been this? Kind of nice he guy. never liked the Cardassians. No, well, who would? <laughs> but, but 
But I think you can't ever let them get really soft. You can always have hints. And, um, you know, we know he's been in love before. He kind of, uh, he, he loved the Cardassian woman during the, uh, during the war year, during, during the occupation. And he kind of liked, um, what's her name? Uh, uh, the Klingon? No, no, the Ferengi girl. The Ferengi girl. <laughs> oh, Pell. Well, he liked Pell. Pell. He liked Pell a lot, although yeah. she was probably a little too much competition for him. <laughs> but, um, and uh, the writers of the current book series have him kind of involved with Roe. You never quite know how far it went, but they they seem to periodically throw a wrench in the plot so that they're not involved or they are involved. And, and you can see in this that Roe kind of is conflicted about it. She still likes Quark a lot. She doesn't want to get too involved with him, but she cares about him. And, you know, and, and when pressed, Quark would admit he cares about her too. Yeah. We we played with that a little bit in the previous book, Rules of Acquisition. We had Quark and, and Roe sort of, you know, walking around the table of one another. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I, I find in this story is the voices of the characters come through really well. I, I think one of my favorite characters in Deep Space Nine has always been Rom. And reading his words on the page, I mean, I hear Max Grudenchek's voice. <laughs> yeah, we tried. <laughs> oh, man. And and just such a I love that character so much. And I'm thinking specifically there's the scene where he goes to rescue Quark all by himself because you know, the constabulary won't do anything. And, and, uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally gets in over his head as Rom does. And I know it's, it's just a ridiculous scene, but it, it just, you painted such a vivid picture and it brought, brought a huge grin to my face where Rom is wildly firing that disruptor around and causing chaos everywhere. And Odo's just kind of standing there like, well, Okay, well, this is happening. <laughs> yeah, let's see where this goes. Yeah, I mean, what else are you going to do? You would, you know, I would find something to hide behind. And <laughs> but, uh, well, Rom, Rom does have a soft heart. So, you know, you always know that. He fights with Quark all the time, but he does care about him, even though he tried to get him killed in a real <laughs> early episode. <laughs> but, uh they kind of changed his character over the years. He started out just kind of being a manipulative Ferengi, and then the writers on Deep Space Nine were really good. They recognized the way the actors could play the role, and then they went with it, and it was brilliant, you know? So they originally kind of wrote Max Grudenchik's character as a little bit, you know, kind of nasty, and as I said, he in, the, in that episode, the Nagus, he... He almost gets court killed, but then they forgive each other because it's a Ferengi thing to do. But, uh, you know, so we we just kind of went with the way the writers did it. And the writers were the ones, they didn't know that Odo was going to fall in love with Kira until they saw that's the way Rene Aubergenois was playing it. You know, uh, I think that was in Heart of Stone. Yeah. But... Uh, but, you know, they didn't have any intention of having that happen. But then when they saw the looks that he was giving her and the pain that's in his face sometimes when he's looking at Kira, they realized, oh, my God, he's plagued that Odo loves her. We're very lucky. We, we all of us, everybody who's listening to this, you, you two on the other end of this line, Paul and I, we're all very lucky. 
we were able to watch seven years of these characters develop and the actors develop into what they were doing with them. So we don't really have to develop a lot of that anymore. It exists. So we can just take, you know, the, the, our favorite part of Ram, our favorite part of Nog, our favorite part of O'Brien, and use that when we're writing. And but you know, and we can re, we can recall back to, I mean, you know, O'Brien is had some hard luck in his life, and we can play with that. But we didn't have to develop it. The writers of the show have done that for us. I love this show. So it's almost yeah, like it's a great show. It's almost like the scenes, like you had the basic framework as you're figuring out of the story, but the scenes almost write themselves because the characters yeah. just kind of carry it and tell you where it's going to go. You hear writers say that all the time that at, there's a point where the characters take over mm-hmm. and it really does happen. Even, I mean, at, at our level, I'm not saying that we're literary writers. We're, we're writing tie-in novels about a, a television show. But it's really true. You start, we start doing something, and we don't even expect it. And all of a sudden, you know, Quark is, you know, there's a spot where they're dragging him down a flight of steps, and there's a spot where, or up a flight of steps. <laughs> <Up>. <laughs> and he says, you know, it would be easier if you just let me walk. You know, I mean, he, he gets it. And... I don't know where that line came from, but it's it sounded like quirk. Yeah. It so it the, the characters literally take over themselves. Which isn't to say that we didn't make up stuff. It's fun to go to a different planet because you've uh, like Ferenginar because we've got some facts established about it, but there's room to make up other stuff like um you know, Terry gave me credit for coming up with one aspect. I'll give him credit. He came up with the wrong side of the tracks on Ferenginar about uh, a slum area where the the people who live there have kind of given up trying to become rich, which would be a capital sin on Ferenginar. But, uh, you know, and I just love that, that, you know, there's this slum district on Ferenginar where people just don't try very hard. It seemed logical to me. Because they couldn't all be at the peak of capital gains. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you talk about these well-established characters, and the, and that's definitely true. But I have to say, you've also come up with some really interesting original characters in this story as well. Uh, one that really stood out to me was, and I'm going to make sure to pronounce it very distinctively from Quark, is the kind of police officer on Ferenginar, Quirk. And uh, I really like that character, especially his uh, kind of dealings with Odo and Rom. Yeah. We figured there would be, actually, Margaret said to us, um, look at the movie, um, The Thin Man. Well, um, I, would, I just walked right downstairs and pulled off the not pulled off the novel off of our bookshelf and read the book um, because the, th- that kind of kind of comic noir motion picture always had sort of a bumbling cop. Yeah. There, 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 there would be the detective and he would be working alongside of, but totally independent of the police department and the police department would always be one step behind. Yeah. And that's why we came up with quirk. We wanted to have a really good cop, but he had to be one step behind Odo's investigation. And that's mm-hmm. how that worked out. And his his name was actually it wasn't just a play on 
on words. His name actually came out of a Spencer novel. There's a police officer in those stories named Quirk. And mm. Terry said, well, you can't use that name. And I said, yeah, we can. <laughs> Make it a virtue. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, that's really great. Well, one kind of last thing I wanted to talk about with regards to this story are the kind of fun references that are sprinkled throughout it. Uh, there was one that I just, I kind of had to read twice to make sure that it was actually real. There was a very subtle nod to uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's there. It's there. It, it, I mean, how it, when it hits, when, when it gets in your head, you have no choice. You got to write it down. <laughs> now it can be edited out later. Some yeah. we do that, you know, m more often than we should probably. But um, some of them get edited out, and some of them just stick. And yeah, that, it, it's there. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, and we also—I don't know if any of the readers will catch this—but when uh, Odo is the kind of the weird ice creature that catches one of the bumbling uh, sons of the villain. Uh, it's basically, we did, it's the tar baby from Uncle Remus, you know, because the guy punches him and his hand gets stuck. And then he punches him with his other hand and his hand gets stuck, you know. And, and some of the wording was even similar to that because uh, in the stories with the tar baby, it's just the tar baby. He don't do nothing, you know. It's, and, it's legitimate because there's a word for it. People call them Easter eggs. And if, yeah. if, if they gave it, a, if somebody gave it a name, we can do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. That felt really familiar to me, but I, I, for some reason, couldn't put that together. That's awesome. Uh, I also, there was a reference to Corinthian leather, which I think you guys have done in a past story before as well. I think oh. we've managed to work it into each of the novellas. Paul, I can't leave it alone. I can't leave it alone because <laughs> and, and I, I keep thinking of the way Ricardo Montalban used to say and I that. have I have a true story that must be told. Um, I was working on the movie Star Trek V, working, uh, we were on the set, and uh, one day, Ricardo Montalbaum came to the Paramount lot. We were shooting on the Paramount lot. And uh, one day, pa Ricardo Montalbaum came to the s Paramount set, and he was going to do some type of a stand-up for some television show or something. And he came over to the, to, the, uh, to, to the Star Trek V office and said, can I talk you guys into giving me a couple minutes of hair and makeup? I just need a little bit of, of like, a foundation put on so I won't... Uh, you know, flash on the camera. And uh, so he did, and he sat down and, you know, five or six people from from the crew heard, Ricardo Montalbaum's here. And they all went over and uh, kind of gathered around him. And so he just started talking. And somebody mentioned Corinthian, the, 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 the TV ad where he says Corinthian leather, Rich Corinthian was, leather. <laughs> was still airing. So somebody brought it up and he said, you know where that came from? He said it wasn't, there was no adverb, excuse me, there was no adjective at all. It was just uh, these leather seats, or maybe it said these rich leather seats. And we stopped and said, what can we do? And we started thinking about it. And he said, somebody that was with us on the commercial crew said, how about something biblical like Corinthian? And he said, we all immediately said yes. And he said, there's no such thing as Corinthian leather. We made it up on the spot and put it in the commercial. Well, how are you going to not use it? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I had no idea. I, I've been saying Corinthian leather forever. I had no idea that, that was no, just made no. up. No, they, they, you they, can look it up. It actually, if you we we look everything up on the internet and we confirm there is no such thing no, as Corinthian. No, I mean, leather. and we were, and you know, there there were maybe a dozen of us sitting there while while uh, while um, uh, Fernando was having his makeup his makeup put on. And, you know, everybody just, it was fascinating, but everybody just burst into laughter. But uh, he said, you know, it, 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 didn't, it had no meaning whatsoever. It just sounded good, so we used it. So it's our tribute to Ricardo Montalban yeah. <laughs> and Khan <laughs> and everything else like that. Yeah. Well, I wish you could see the look of shock on Bruce's face here <laughs> because it's really quite amusing. <laughs> I had heard I hadn't heard that exact story, but I I had heard that it was not a real thing. So that's yeah, really- yeah, no, I I don't I don't know that we've ever written that. You you guys may have an exclusive from Terry, but um, <laughs> but I heard it directly from you know from the uh, the, the 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 enhanced creature's mouth. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I was kind of just wondering if there are. Any other references that you guys might have snuck in that you want to point to that we might have missed? Mm-hmm. Well, whenever we put in a name like any other writer, it usually is based on something or other. In this case, um, several of the characters' <laughs> names are based on towns that we've been through, like Hilt. And uh, there's a town not far from where we live called that's actually called Weed, and uh, to use it as a as one of the wives' names, I I added an e to the end to make it seem more fen- feminine. Right, and we we have a close friend who's uh, who has several names, and we uh, you know like a hyphenated kind of, uh, and uh, we use several of the parts of her name as the names of the sons of the villain, you know. So so that's kind of fun stuff. Um, we invented something. Um, on the show, the, um, on, on Deep Space Nine television show, the latinum was, was established as a liquid so that it had to be gold-pressed latinum in the episode Who Mourns for Morn. And um, we always heard that latinum, that gold-pressed latinum came in three values. It came in slips, strips, and bricks. Oh, and, uh, that's right. There's four. <laughs> slips, strips. Bars and bricks. Yeah, that's right. It. And we, for this, because we were going to the poor side of town, we invented snips and drips. And that was fun because the words were right there. It, was not, yeah. it wasn't difficult to come up with perfect other names for, for, you know, for the change in your pocket. Yeah, and that's real small change on Ferenginar. <laughs> and when you're writing this stuff, just kind of comes, it just falls into your head. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. I, I I liked the idea that it was, uh, you know, the two tourists on the on the transport too, going like, "What? What the heck is this?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, because you know the people, the inhabitants, wouldn't get into you know the word, but you know I could see a a character from another planet finding it very amusing. <laughs> you know? Well, this is I think this is the first time we've ever met really, you know, the the other end of society and Frankenar. Even in our previous books, the um, like in uh, the rules of acquisition, we had um, all of the, the the civic leaders and the industrial leaders all gather at Quark's bar. But we never we've never seen 
you know, a, a low end Ferengi. In that book, we had a couple of villains, you know, a couple of guys who had had nothing in their pockets, but they weren't Ferengi. They were, uh, I forget what kind of what kind of species we had them. But um, so this is we we actually got to kind of explore a little bit of. Um, one of the reviews that we saw online about this book, some uh, someone said it was nice to see some really silly, silly world building. So I, I got a <laughs> kick out of that. Yes, that's what we specialize in, silly world building. Really? Well, it sounds like we're going to need uh, a travel guide for Ferenginar. I really think we should get that next. <laughs> that would be fun. It would be fun. <laughs> it would be fun. So, yeah. so any of you publishers out there listening <laughs> we're ready well well or it, it 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 might end up being dayton yeah or it could be dayton because dayton's already done a couple of them yeah, so yeah we'll help them yes, there you yeah go. <laughs> uh, i'll <laughs> throw it in dayton awesome. ward spectacular writer absolutely well uh is there anything coming up on the horizon for the two of you uh star trek related or otherwise that our listeners should know about we kind of took a break after we finished the Labyrinth book last year because we had to do it so fast in such a short period of time that we just worked ourselves into a frenzy. Well, and and then we did the Quark book, but that was like a vacation because it's fun to write. But uh, so we actually turned down a couple books in the last year just so we could relax because we get burned out a little bit too. But, you know, we... We really prefer the fiction to the nonfiction because it's, as I said, it's more fun to do. You can make mm -hmm. stuff up. You can't make stuff up in the nonfiction books. But, um, <laughs> you know, there may be some stuff. There's nothing in the immediate future, but there may be stuff coming up down the road. We have other writing projects. We write for a local newspaper and right. things like that. But um, not in, at the moment, not in the Star Trek world, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I do have to say, uh, last year for Christmas, I gave a friend of mine who absolutely loves Labyrinth, I gave her your guy's book, and she loved it. So uh, I, I need to borrow it from her and flip through it myself, but I can tell you she really, really enjoyed it. There's still <laughs> copies available at the yeah. store. Yes. But, uh, yeah, that was fun to write. Yeah, I mean, it was such a pain, but the editor called us up and said, I don't suppose either of you like the movie Labyrinth. And I said, oh, me, 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 you know, because it's, it really, if you talk to people, the guys will say, oh yeah, that's that movie that had David Bowie in it. But if you talk to a girl, she'll say, oh my God, I loved that movie when I was growing up. It was my favorite movie. And it really hit a chord with women. So of course I was the one who said, oh yes, I love that movie. <laughs> so Dan, you can't, you can't borrow the book back. You have to purchase the book here. We have to help our yeah. authors. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, that, that would be nice. We don't really get royalties on most of our books because these days the publishing industry, some of the publishing houses still pay royalties, but I would say a good portion of them pay a slightly larger advance than they used to and no royalties. Oh, that's interesting. So, I didn't so know it's that. Just the, it's just the fame and fortune that we go for. <laughs> it depends on the publishing house. So it we, does. We have it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Simon & Schuster still does royalties. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the other ones, especially some of the newer ones that do a lot of those books about the film industry and stuff like that, they, they tend not to. Yes, they, they operate off Ferengi economy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Excellent. Well, uh, if any of our listeners wish to follow you guys and check out what's going on with you guys online, is there anywhere that they would be able to do so? They can always check us out on Facebook. We're pretty active there. And actually, um, uh, we got onto Twitter. I've been on Twitter for about two years, and Terry finally gave in and and got on Twitter last year because Ira Bear did. (laughs) And if Ira Bear would put up with doing Twitter, Terry figured he could. Yes, and I must be, I'm not quite sure if I'm doing something right, but last week I had 113 followers, and today I had 111 followers. <laughs> so <laughs> They come and go. They, come. <laughs> they do. It depends on what you say. When, <laughs> when you say something interesting, you get more followers, yeah. and if you don't say anything for a while, they get yeah. bored and they leave. But we're on Facebook all the time, and uh, we both use our middle initials. That's how to find us on Facebook. Yeah, and they can find us on Twitter, too, so... That, and we haven't done anything like establish our own website yet. Awesome, I'd have awesome. To, I'd have to hire a 12-year-old to teach me how to do yeah, it. Yeah, to set up our website for us. We'd have to hire <laughs> Mike Akuta to tell us what to do or somebody like that. Yeah, we would. Yeah. yeah. Mike Akuta, by the way, um, helped us make up one bit of technology in this book when, when Odo needed a, a long-distance communicator so that he could keep in touch with Rom. Um, we knew that on the show, they kind of established both ways. There was one episode where when Odo goes to Liquid or something like that, his communicator falls off. But in all the other ones, his communicator was actually part of Odo. So we called up Mike Akuta one day and asked how that would be possible and, and what would be involved with inventing a new piece of technology that would become part of it would become part of him. And Mike kind of gave us some workarounds, although I don't know that he expected us to take it in the direction that we did. (laughs) But that's why we thanked Mike and Denise. Paula invented that um, Odo can actually have... uh, Ram invents a visual communicator for Odo to use while he's on Ferenginar. And we rationalized that that would be possible because um, the, in the movie Star Trek IV, when they're, when they're uh, you know, on the way home, they're, the whales are stolen and sent out in the, or, or are released and they're out in the ocean and this Russian vessel is about to shoot them and the, uh, the Enterprise crew in their Klingon ship are hovering above them and Kirk says... Um, Put it on video. Visual. And put it on visual, and the woman says, how do you do that? And then it just goes to video. They never answered the question, <laughs> but it proves that we could do it too. <laughs> yeah. So we put it on visual. <laughs> so we put it on visual. Yes, and even Oda doesn't know how it works. <laughs> Excellent. I love how uh, invested Rom is in that too. He's like, oh, yeah, I, I was totally asking about Quark. That's good that he's safe. But how's the visual feed working? <laughs> no, really? Well, no one should ever forget. I mean, yeah. Rom is, in fact, a happily married to a beautiful, intelligent woman. The And, and, and Grand Nagus, the most powerful Ferengi in the, in the, uh, in the universe, and yet... At heart, he's an engineer. He will always be an engineer. Yep. Once an engineer, always an engineer. You betcha. Yep. You betcha.
Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. This has been a really fun discussion. And thank you guys for a really great story, too. This was a really yes, fun Yes, we really and- enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Lee enjoyed writing it a lot. <laughs> yeah. There's three of them, by the way. This is number three. Yep, absolutely. And every everyone out there uh, listening, if you haven't picked these up, you should because they are a, they are great reads. So They're really cheap, too. <laughs> cheap <laughs> enough for a cheap Frankie. And, and they're intentionally novellas, which means they're short. Yeah. Uh, so you can read them real quick. And um, you don't have to invest a whole lot of time and uh, a whole lot of money because they're inexpensive. They're online only. And we assume that you have some way to read them on your computer or your phone or something. Yep. I read this all in one day, the day after Thanksgiving. That was my Black Friday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it saved you money, didn't it? (laughs) I enjoyed that more than shopping. Well, that was my first time talking to Paula and Terry. And I know, of course, Dan, that you, you've you talked to them before and uh, they were really uh, fun to talk to. And just it's just so great to talk to people who write Star Trek, but also have been involved in other aspects of Star Trek and just learn little stories and little anecdotes from their experience with the series. Yeah, I mean, those two, I I think I said it to you before the interview, they're a hoot. I always love talking to the two of them. And yeah, they've had so many years of experience with Star Trek. They're always full of really great stories. Uh, That little bit of insight into Ricardo Montalban, I thought that was really cool. Oh, the Corinthian leather. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was made up. And maybe I did and I (laughs) forgot, but I just, that, that just, that that was funny that that really i'll remember that of course but uh but also uh when we weren't recording uh terry had mentioned that he has been interviewed for the ds9 uh documentary that's coming out and uh it's about the and they are using the ds9 companion in that so he doesn't know if he's going to be in the documentary but he was definitely consulted or interviewed for it so He's not sure if he's on the cutting room floor or not, but uh, he did want to mention that uh, he has some kind of involvement and the companion has some kind of involvement with the DS9 documentary. And I'm I'm looking forward. That should be out in the next few months, hopefully. And that's going to be so awesome to see that. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely really looking forward to that as well. I, I contributed to their uh, campaign. The what we left behind is what it's called. Yep. So. Keep your eyes open for that, and hopefully we'll be able to see Terry Erdman in it as well. And uh, I can't imagine them not using him. He's so much fun to interview, as you've all just heard. So uh, really great stuff. And man, do they ever know their Star Trek. You know, there there are a few people that I would be scared to go up against in a round of Star Trek trivia, and Paula and Terry as a combined team would be a very formidable opponent I don't know if I'd be able to survive that one. I don't know. Maybe we should try that, Dan. See how you do against them. Hmm. Could be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what it's all about is fun. It doesn't matter who wins. It's the fun that counts. Absolutely. Well, it's been fun talking about getting my butt kicked at Star Trek Trivia today, but that's not the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Warp 5. Did you know that it's the same planet that they're talking about? No. Yeah, so uh, 
Nuh-uh. It is. No. <laughs> so it's Creos Prime. Like, the, like she also comes from Creos Prime, right? So, and the makeup is the same and everything, right? So, like, that was... A- okay, I did have that. I'm like, okay, the only thing I can see is that they have the same makeup. Mm. That was the only thing. And I was wondering why it was the same, and now I know. Why did I not make that connection? You guys are so smart. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Well, when I was thinking about where do I find peace, I found it so ironic because it seems in opposition to what my fear is. And when I think, gosh, Amy, where am I at peace? It's when I'm alone. And then and then I was thinking, well, that's stupid because my greatest fear is being alone. <laughs> the 602 Club. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about Um Gosh, uh, well, for the last two films that we've talked about, to say that what I want for Roger Moore is a sense of dignity for the character. Continuing mission. Now, on today's show, we have a very special guest who has steered the good ship Enterprise through some perilous adventures, fought off dastardly villains, and wooed the ladies all in a day's work. He's now vacated the captain's chair by order of Starfleet Command and is now being railroaded in a new career. (laughs) More about that later. (laughs) Excuse the puns. Will you please welcome to continuing mission, Mr. Vic Mignogna. How are you doing, Vic? That was a very creative narrative you just put together there. I love it. That was quite, quite, uh, quite witty, sir. (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, that's high praise indeed. Thank you. Thank, well, it's a pleasure to join you and Zach both. Thanks for having me. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So be sure to check out all of these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. So, hey, you Apple users out there, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on your iPhone or your iPad or Apple TV or wherever, your desktop iTunes app. And that way you'll get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And you know what? While you're at it, please leave us a star rating and written review. That would really help a lot. And if you're not an Apple user, well, we've got you covered. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can always stream us and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. Well, if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. There are lots of perks you can get, including early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month, and we would really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So what'd you think of today's show? Well, let us know. You can do that by joining the larger conversation in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that in a form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. 
You can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. You know, if you really want to keep track of the books you've been reading and what you'd like to read in the future, there's a great website out there to do that, and that's Goodreads. And Literary Treks is also on Goodreads. We have a group there where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section, so you know what's coming up for future shows. And plus, there are great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the Star Trek universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads on Goodreads and click join group and one of us will let you right in. We'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shemutala, and Justin Ozer for their support of the Trek FM network and specifically for being associate producers for literary treks. Well, Bruce, when you're not looking to franchise your bars all across Ferenginar and the entire Frangi Alliance, where can we find you? Oh, brother, you can find me with Moogie. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do that. Um, <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me when we have new episodes of Discovery. The next day, I'm on Live on the Edge with Brandy Jackala. Uh, that's part of the Edge feed. And we do that live Monday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And, uh, you know, we've got a Star Wars movie coming out really soon, The Last Jedi. And I'm on Star Wars Report at StarWarsReport.com. I'm on those podcasts quite often. So take a listen to that as we build up to the new film and listen to what we think about after the film comes out. And, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. And so, Dan, when you're not on Ferenginar interviewing naked female Ferengi about where their investments are. Where can people find you? Well, luckily, uh, I was kind of doing that with the idea in mind that it would be a television show. So there was always, you know, very strategically placed placed tables and bowls of fruit and such. <laughs> so, you know, it was awkward, but not nearly as awkward as you would think. But when I'm not navigating those weird, awkward encounters, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on Instagram at Kurtrats47. You can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, usually hanging around the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one. 